This is season four of Flute Unscripted. Hi, I'm your host, Katie Massad, and I sit down with a new artist every week and share their stories with you. This podcast is brought to you by Flute Center of New York, the marketplace for flutes. Join us, subscribe, rate, and review us. Use this podcast promo code LISTEN for some special deals. Get $50 off any flute or accessory purchase of $4.99 or more and 10% off any sheet music order, including free shipping on all orders over Wilson is in front of an orchestra as a soloist or leading a group as a conductor, he is proud to be serving music and the vision of its composers. At the start of his career, Ransom knew he wanted to be a soloist just like his idol and teacher Jean-Pierre Rampal. He was immediately picked up by management, toured, and recorded albums. As Ransom began to feel disenchanted with the touring lifestyle, he turned to chamber music and he became the flutist for the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, a position he held for 20 years. Ransom incorporates his passion for chamber music in his curriculum at Yale University, where he is professor of flute, and the high caliber of playing and self-sufficiency he demands from his students gives him the freedom to explore other facets of his career. As a conductor, he has led performances at the New York City Opera, Metropolitan Opera, and is now the music director of the Redlands Symphony in Southern California. Before his masterclass at Flute Center New York, Ransom was generous enough to let me pick his brain about score studying, teaching, and figuring out just how to make your conductor happy. Ransom, thanks for coming today. It's a pleasure to meet you. My pleasure. And uh, I, I was really interested reading up about you and learning more about your career, um, that it kind of took a turn from where you thought you would be when you were younger. Uh, you grew up in Alabama, right. and uh, it's a big football state. You thought you might be a, a band director. Um, being that it was very sports-centric there, did you ever have a hard time from other kids growing up and choosing to play the flute instead of being a big sports guy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was one, it's one of the things that, that um, pushed me to leave town. Yeah. Because, yeah, by the, my, my, uh, my mother saw an article in the paper about the North Carolina School of the Arts, which at the time was brand new, mm-hmm. and they were looking for students. They didn't have enough students. Yeah, you were part of, like, the first class. Second. Second. Yeah. Wow. But the first one was a really small number, I think. Um, but in any case, um, that... That that was my East Coast trajectory right mm-hmm. there, you know. So from there it was Juilliard and yeah. But uh, yeah, so I was I was happy to have a, have a, a way out of town. Tell you the truth, yeah, and also probably be around like minded people. Exactly, yeah. Well. I mean, I just like how did I end up in this place? You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you uh, went to uh, North Carolina School of the Arts and then uh, Juilliard, you studied with Julius Baker to start, and then you talk about how you two didn't really hit it off and you you switch studios yeah um can you talk about kind of that that teacher student etiquette and finding the right teacher and how do you deal with when you know it's not going to work out and what's you know advice for the proper way to maybe leave someone's studio and join someone else's i you know it's it's difficult uh, you know to, the truth of the matter is that uh, julie kicked me out oh really so it, made, it made it easier <laughs> to find go to another teacher do you mind me um, asking why um we were just, I mean, we became friends later, but I think, I don't know, I, it was just like really bad chemistry from yeah. day one. Just, I didn't like the way he talked to me. He didn't like the way I talked to him. And it just went like that back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but as I said, we you know we we patched it up later, but uh, it was difficult for both of us. Yeah. So uh, when when he kicked me out, um, and I'm in a very good, very small, select group of people that he kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went to you know I went to talk to Arthur Laura who was Toscanini's flute player mm-hmm. in the NBC Symphony and also I think principal, principal of the Met. Of the Met. Yeah. yeah. And um, he wasn't. He said you know I don't have to take you. He was like he he made it a little difficult, but uh, but it it worked out and he was such a he was an amazing gentleman you know like he came fully dressed in a suit and tie every time he taught wow. and he he could he would talk about how New York was in the thirties, which you know I had no other connection to the that time period mm-hmm. and it sounded fantastic to me you know um, he was he was Barrere's favorite student. Um, Kincaid was the most famous one, but 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 Barrere gave all of his music to, to Arthur, hmm. and some and most of instru- instruments as well. So uh, he everything for him was in relation to Barrere. So he would say, um, you know, you play something for him. He said, well, because he had all of Barrere's scores, so he'd find sure. out what you were going to play ahead of time, and he would bring Barrere's copy of that That's piece. Pretty special, and, yeah, yeah. And he would say, well. He berated this here and this here. You know, when you're young, you don't kind of don't want to hear that. But, <laughs> but you know, now in retrospect, I realize it was a great, you know, it was a great treasure. To With all of his all markings that. and everything yeah, there too. Yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah, I I went um, when when uh, when Arthur retired, he went out to to Santa Barbara, in Montecito, which has been in the news because of all the fires yeah. and floods and stuff. Um, and I visited him once out there. He had sold everything. I think Mike Parloff ended up with a lot of his hmm. music, I think. Um, and the only evidence that he had been a musician was a signed uh, photograph of Toscanini. That's that was all. it. That was it. And you yeah. know that it, the music's now going to like pass down through students of students, and it's going to make its rounds around the flute community, too, which is kind of neat. Yeah. Um, another big influence on your playing was Ron Paul. You, you studied with him in yeah. Paris. Yeah. Um, and you recorded an album together, which is kind of neat, right? He just asked you yeah. off the cuff, like, hey, you want to record with me? And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I had been, I had been um, going to the library every day looking for music. At the time, you know, he was championing all this 18th century music. And um, it's so funny because in those days, you couldn't just go to the Bibliothèque Nationale. You had to have permission. Hmm. You couldn't, like, go in seems weird to me yeah i think now it's all open but um it was in this little kind of dark place and he uh, we were looking i was looking for this divienne concerto for two flutes which n- was lost and it was misfiled at the library <laughs> and he had to come in with me and convince them that they should keep looking and fine we finally found it uh and it had an 18th century staple in it holding wow. it all together it was like a, a cloth it was like you know sewn together right all the parts um and then i found another one as well oh dieter uh also in the library and um so that we already had two so he added this viotti one to it and said let's let's record with the solis divinity and i was like okay i guess i could arrange that <laughs> and uh that was yeah i mean when when i think back he was the most generous person I think I've ever known. It just, I mean, n- nobody in our business does that. You know, people don't tend to 
say I'm going to give this great gift to a young person just yeah. because they're good, you know. Yeah. Most, I mean, a lot of people feel intimidated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, he do you just, think a lot of people feel like they have to make younger people go through the ringer a little bit too? To you don't want to make it too easy for them, and because you've had it tough, so you want to make it tough for them. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, but he was just, you know, his philosophy of life was you know whatever i have i'm going to share it with everybody Mm -hmm. which was how he was on stage too yeah and i think you know i i I realized when i I think it was in 1970 something like that i went to to uh, to france for the first time and i heard concerts and i heard that there were a lot of people playing the flute at the level that jean-pierre played it but jean-pierre had this special other thing which was this generosity of spirit and that's what made him great. Mm-hmm. That, that's how he could create magic in the hall, you know. I mean, he was a wonderful flute player, don't get me wrong. But, but the, the, the level of playing in the whole country was so high at that point that uh, had he not had that special gift of generosity, I don't think anybody would have noticed him. You know? And do you feel like you try to pass that on too, pass on the, that tradition of his playing? Definitely. I mean, I'm, I feel like now I'm trying to uphold a tradition mm-hmm. that's disappearing even in France. Yeah. You know, um, I gave class a class at the Paris Conservatory just like two months ago, and it's changing, and uh, I wasn't happy about it. How it do you this... feel like flute playing is changing? Well, it, in in France in particular, I mean, it's just becoming more international, so it doesn't sound French anymore. Yeah, you know, it just kind of sounds generic, hmm. and I kind of like kind of liked that there used to be a German school and a French school and sure. an Italian school. That was cool because mm-hmm. you could learn a lot f- from each other, you know. Do you think the uh, rise of social media and, and quick access to everything is, is kind of helped that along? Who knows? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. And you have access to everyone's recordings. Now yes. Too. Yeah. Very easy. But um, for example, all the orchestras now sound pretty much the same. And it used to be that you could always tell the Vienna Philharmonic by the wind playing mm-hmm. and, and concert by the same thing. And now they're all just the same. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a shame. Sure. How do you, do you think you're trying to change that a little bit with your, I wanted to talk about conducting mm-hmm. later, but is that something um, that you keep in mind, conducting your group? The Red yeah, Along group? with a million other things, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, uh, yeah, I mean, what what happens with the, you know, most regional orchestras get three rehearsals. Yeah. And so you're you're just racing against the clock mm-hmm. to, to just get everything rehearsed, even once sometimes, you know. So not much time to think about other stuff. No. Except, <laughs> you know, you try to mold the sound of a group. Um, and I, I, I'm, 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 I'm terrified of the idea about having to fire somebody. I'd much rather work with them and talk to them and see, see what we can do. You know, mm-hmm. see how we can see how they can kind of meet my vision, um, and it usually works out. But do you think, as a, a musical director, I mean, a lot of them have such autonomy and such power to hire, fire, do everything. Do you think that's healthy, or should there be a little bit more of a level playing field between your music directors and you know the the group of administrators that are made up of musicians? It's actually, um, in most regional orchestras, it, it's pretty much a level playing field. Yeah. I mean, uh, there, there are instances in which I, I can make a decision that, that can't be challenged, but there are very few of those. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, if I, if I decided that, I, that somebody just had to go, it, you have to go through a whole process sure. uh, of a couple, of, uh, more than a year in order to get that to happen. 
Um, so I'd say there's checks and balances. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like, I mean, I can program. That's one thing I can do that nobody will, will argue with. And I can, um, um, if somebody's on tenure and they're not working out, I can just say, you don't get tenure. Um, I think those are the only two things I can do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's pretty balanced for you. I feel like it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're in this kind of great position of being flutist and conductor. Um, you've experienced both aspects of being the performer and being on the podium. Uh, what are some advice you think you can give to, to flutists sitting in the section from what a conductor is really looking for in you? Well, I mean, I guess that's always different, but I, but I would say um, I have noticed a trend which makes me very happy um, that the people that are winning principal jobs now through all these auditions with hundreds of people uh, are not the people that play the most perfectly. They're the ones that play the most interestingly. Hmm. And it's a, just the beginning of that trend, and I'm trying to push that trend as far as I can. With my students, I'm just saying, look, everybody plays perfectly now. Yeah. You know, yeah. All, all 99 people that show up for that job play these excerpts perfectly. Yep. How are you going to be different from them? You know, what... You gotta have a you, you have to have a musical interpretation, you know. Mm -hmm. My former student Mark Sparks has has a series of books. I don't know if you guys have got them yet here. I think we have. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's it's a really good series. Yeah. Because he talks about this very issue. I mean, he says he says you know you need to know the entire piece. You can't just do the the the, the classical symphony excerpt. You have to know the, you have to know how your part fits in with all the others. And he he actually in the book he has like the violin parts. Which is brilliant. Right. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of that comes back to score studying as well, which, you know, as a, a conductor, obviously, that, that's a huge part of what you're, you're doing. Um, and I think everyone knows at this point that's what we all need to be doing, but it can be a little intimidating because yeah. if you're not as comfortable with a score or with all the parts and all the keys, uh, it, it can be overwhelming and it's a huge book. Um, do you have any tips for incorporating that into your daily practice and making it more approachable? You know what I do when I'm when I'm trying to when I'm learning a score. One of the one of the phases I go through is playing through as much of it as I can on the flute, so that I feel a really like a, a, a close physical attachment to it. Um, because it's not. I mean, you you can study and study and study all you want, mm -hmm. but you don't have that tactile feeling that we get when we play. Yeah. So I try to combine those, and I would advise anybody to just you know. Play the if nothing else, play the first violin part, and uh, you just you end up just knowing the piece inside your body somehow in a mm -hmm. way that you don't just from looking at it. Teaching is a big accomplishment of yours, and you've been at Yale now for twenty six years. I think it's twenty seven. Twenty seven. Maybe now? maybe this is my twenty seventh year yeah, as we yeah, speak. Yeah. Um, what do you? I, I mean, you're also really proud of your students all keeping music as a part of their lives, whether it's their full-time career or just something that they continue to be passionate about. Um, what do you say to people that might be telling flutists that this is a, a bad career, a bad time to be pursuing performance as a career? I don't think that's true. Yeah. I just think that you may not end up doing what you thought you'd be doing, but you'll be, in, you'll, you know, you'll do, you can make a living as a musician. Mm -hmm. There's just a, a lot of different ways of doing it and they don't involve, all involve sitting in, in a chair in an orchestra. Sure. Um, I, have, I have students that are uh, that are music therapists now, and they feel incredibly fulfilled by that. 
and you know and, and the training they had with me is a part of what made them get that job or made them decide that they could use their skills in a meaningful way you know um, I, I don't think I have one well I may have one student that that this that's just an amateur now but everybody else is making a living good for them yeah 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 it's uh, it's it's a pretty good track record I have to say how do you feel about the teachers that um, might have a more like brutally or brutally honest or more pessimistic approach to it where if they feel like a student can't make it they'll they might be honest and say you just don't have it now, do you think that's appropriate for a teacher to do or or not appropriate you know I've only done that I think twice uh, and it was always it, it, it wasn't it was never about you're not talented enough it was always about I can tell you don't really like this hmm. you know and uh, I remember the first time I had the courage to actually do that because I basically don't believe it's a good idea because I've noticed people bloom at different times in different ways yeah. you know and I'm a kind of teacher that like I don't want ev anybody to sound like me you know I, I'm happy to share whatever I know but I want them to sound like themselves and that's what I do is help them to find themselves and to find out what's the what are the unique things about their playing and help them to make that as good as it can be mm -hmm. so and the first person I did I I I told that to I was so afraid that I was going to destroy her but th as soon as I said it she said oh you're right <laughs> it was like a relief yeah and yeah. then she went on to to be a star in another another field of right. music you know yeah. and like a real star and just like and it took that I gave her permission yeah you know so but it, it's something that I don't really advise teachers to do you mm -hmm. know, because you never know when somebody's yeah. gonna suddenly get it you know right so I, I try to stay away from that just try to give them I mean I, we talk as much about life as we do about music because I'm very lucky I get to teach the age group that I like the best which is graduate level mm -hmm. and that's pretty much all I teach Ransom attended the North Carolina School of the Arts and later joined its faculty, but was concerned with the direction it was heading and ultimately left due to irreconcilable differences with the administration. In an impassioned speech that he gave at his final performance at the school, Ransom spoke about preserving the legacy of the institution as he first knew it, a place that was only interested in the education and betterment of the students and their careers. Ransom is certainly carrying on this mission now through his teaching at Yale. It's probably safe to assume since you've been at Yale so long, you're very happy with their mission and, and the way that faculty works with students. And that wasn't always the case for you. You were on faculty at, at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts and you left because you felt like they weren't putting the needs of the students first. Um, what do you think are some real life challenges when you're a professor of working with an administration? Because I think also a lot of kids that are, are getting DMAs um, and wanting to be professors might not be equipped or know about the realities of working with administration and all of that half yeah. of the stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, I must say that when when I when I did go back to my alma mater, I was shocked at at how everything had deteriorated since I had been there. Um, and I and, and and I can only say that because it's gotten so much better since. Mm -hmm. They have a new chancellor. They have a new um, dean. And everything, I still have friends on the faculty down there, and everything's 
you know, every, everybody's really happy. Uh, and I think that, that my departure helped some of that happen. Yeah. So I feel good. But, um, we're lucky at Yale because we have really, really great staff. Uh, and I, and I realized that when I, when I, uh, when I go to other schools <laughs> and yeah. I can see, wow, we're really lucky. Yeah. Um, the thing is that, I think you know people that work on 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 staff don't have usually the same kind of passion that we do, so they don't understand why we feel passionate about things. You know that they have to deal with all of us. You yeah. Know? Um, I mean, the the worst part about about getting a, a, a teaching job is the paperwork. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and again at Yale we're lucky because it's a private school, so there's not there's none of the state paperwork mm -hmm. that has to go. But uh, I worked for a while at SUNY Purchase uh, after North Carolina uh, as the conductor, and I was only I was only very little part time, but the paperwork was un, uh, overwhelming. Yeah, you know, and that so that's you know if anybody's thinking about getting a college job, prepare yourself because, and uh, you know you'll we, have homework. <laughs> well, it was interesting. We we had we had a. Uh, uh, a mandatory seminar for new hires at Purchase. <laughs> they didn't get to it till the second year I was there. But <laughs> I had to go and we met with this guy who explained to us why there was so much paperwork. And 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 I must say I admired him because uh, it was what he was telling us was real. Mm -hmm. You know, especially in a state school, the, the, the our, you know our salaries and the school and the building and everything is all paid for by the taxpayers. Yeah, and they want to know that their kids are in safe safe hands first of all and and, and expert hands and so that's why everything has to be documented because and any taxpayer could at any moment come in and say i want to see how many hours he's actually shown up right you know? right <laughs> checks and balances for it's, everything yeah. yeah and uh i never really had fully realized that before yeah. you know um, so it makes sense but it's it, it's time consuming yeah you know? sure <laughs> Um, so now I wanted to kind of come full circle and, and come back to asking a little bit more about conducting. Um, at the time of your life when you wanted to, you decided you wanted to be serious about it, you wanted to study with the best of the best, um, which one of the best included Leonard Bernstein. Mm -hmm. um, you had a really unique opportunity of being able to go on tour with him. You were performing um, and you got to spend a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with him and lessons in conducting and as well as just spending time together. And what was he like behind the scenes and what were your conducting lessons like too? Well, I mean, he was a genius. I think he was, you know, the only really true genius I've ever known. And, uh, you know, for example, you know, he, he was so famous and, um, that he had this entourage of assistants that traveled with him to carry things and, and, and go for things and stuff. And, we would all be staying in the same so I was the soloist I was part of his entourage mm -hmm. and the orchestra was always at another hotel and um and I remember we were in Japan in Japan and we just arrived and none of us could sleep because of the jet lag yeah and so we're all all of us except for Lenny are are, are watching tv you know and Lenny's writing poetry in Hebrew you know, I mean, that's the difference. <laughs> so, yeah, that um, says it all, I guess. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, I mean, you know, he could be very difficult, but he also, um, 
he was so inspiring to be around you know if he was in a good mood you you just you you felt so lucky to be receiving these 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 gifts of of of, of his attention and his genius you mm -hmm. know when he was in a bad mood it was difficult yeah. it was he he could be very difficult but um the but lessons with him he he took what he called the talmudic approach Whereas if you don't ask the right question, you don't get the answer. <laughs> so, it, so it was a challenge, you know, I mean, the challenge was for me to find out what to ask him, which is a really interesting way of teaching, mm. you know. Um, he, one of the pieces that we were doing, there were two tours, and I forget what program was what, but there were one of them that had Brahms one on it. And... Um, I was open. The, I was playing his Khalil, and I yeah. always opened the program with that. And then I was done for the evening, you know. So he gave me permission to sit in the orchestra and watch him during Brahms, which of course he loved, you know, having somebody watch just him. <laughs> and uh, um, so I sat with the trombones, and they don't play until the last movement anyway, <laughs> so nobody noticed me, I'm sure. Right. And. Um, what were they doing for all those movements? What were the trombones doing on tour yeah, during Brahms? Uh, well, there were, it was it was pre it was pre smartphone. Pre, yeah, so yeah. I don't remember, but I, I do remember a lot of reading going yeah. on, you know, novels and whatever. But um, so that I mean that was an incredible education right there. Just just watching him. Um, the thing that was so amazing about him was that anything he thought or felt would come out as a physical gesture. There was no filter. It was really transparent. It would just yeah. came right out, you know. And that also was true in his personal life. So he could say very hurtful things to people without really thinking it through, you know. It just would come out, you know. Um, but so I asked him, I asked him about the slow movement of the Brahms. But he did this, he did this little um, rubato at a certain point in the first phrase. And I had been asking him other things, and he wouldn't answer me until I asked that question. He said, ah, now you've asked the right question. And, and he, you know, he said, he said that, that gesture, which happens a couple of times in the movement, is a question. And he keeps asking it. And finally, in the last bar, he answers it. And, and that changed the way I look at music. You know, just hearing hearing his point of view about something mm -hmm. like that, you know. So that, 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 there was never anything about technique. It was always about the music. It was always about uh, looking, you know, looking very deeply at the music. I remember um, one of the lessons uh, was on a, a an overseas flight. And again, he'd be very generous. He upgraded me to first class so that I could sit next to him and have this lesson mm -hmm. on Copeland Quiet City. Beautiful piece yeah. for, you know. Um, he thought he had given the premiere of it but couldn't remember. You know, this is the kind of thing, we, you know, we, oh yeah, well, Copeland was one of his best friends. So. <laughs> but um, he showed me how, he said, you know, musical form is not just about the big architecture of a piece. It also, it also, it, it goes down to every detail, and and it showed me how Copeland had used his melodic intervals to relate to the harmonic intervals, and and how that related to the whole structure. 
again, I had never looked at music in that way before. Mm. And, you know, these things change you. You know, like my eyes were open yeah. to a completely different way of looking at music. I wonder if you're going to see, do you know they're making a movie about him now? I know. Yeah. I know. I wonder. I'm, I'm, I'll be curious to hear lot, your thoughts about after you watch it. There's a, there's a lot, there's a lot to go into. A yeah. Movie. I, his daughter just wrote this remarkable book about their family life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's called Growing Up Bernstein. And uh, it's really good. First of all, she's a great writer. I mean, even just on that level alone, you can appreciate the mm-hmm. beautiful writing. But um, I recognized a lot of it. Um, a lot of it I didn't know. You know, I didn't know how close he was to Mike Nichols, for example, mm. who was a family friend who would come over and play with the kids and yeah. that kind of thing. But uh, it's it's a and it's a very honest, like vulnerable telling of of a story with some difficult, you know, d- difficult yeah. uh, details. And uh, I remember talking to him on, on on that same on the same flight. Um, he always wore his wedding ring. And his wife had died a good ten years earlier, and I and I said something. I asked him something about her. He said, "You know, I have a, I have a um, policy never to discuss her, but you had something about the way you asked the question. I'm going to answer." And he and he was convinced that he had given her cancer, which is crazy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But he was so convinced of it. He, said he deals he, with that he, burden for his whole, whole yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, and he just felt this this crushing guilt yeah. about it, that I think is kind of what fueled his music making at the end. You know, is why why his music making was so kind of tortured at mm-hmm. the end. You know, one other aspect of conducting that I I, I thought is um, might be interesting to talk to you about. One of my favorite quote, quotes from. Robert Willoughby is, while playing in the orchestra, if you are already playing the loudest and the conductor tells you to play louder, just move more energetically and the conductor will be satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean... I, Does that, that ever... <laughs> do you think that ever goes over on you? Does that trick work? <laughs> I'm, 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 sure I'll, I'm sure they're doing all kinds of tricks. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, there, I, somebody, somebody once said, uh, if you're angry at a conductor... The, the way to get back at him is to do exactly what he said. You know? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, in order to break down what you want mm-hmm. into one sentence, you're not really, you're not really saying what you mean. You know, yeah. you're just, it's, it's a very poor representation. So if somebody just takes it literally and just kind of plays louder or something like mm-hmm. that, then of course it sounds awful. Right. And, uh, but I just, just two nights ago, I saw a clip of, uh, Carlos Kleiber that I had never seen before um, and I had corresponded with him for a while I saw I saw uh, I saw a video of his that just so enchanted me that I, I got in touch with him through his manager and I, we went back and forth he was famously paranoid and I, I said I'll come anywhere in the world to see a, a, a rehearsal or a performance and he said no I never meet people you know he just <laughs> you know. but he was happy to answer questions but I just, but I saw a, a video of him when he was young, working with the Southwest R- R- German Radio Orchestra on the uh, Fledermaus Overture, which is one of his, you know, famous pieces. And um, it was amazing to hear the way he talked to the orchestra. And it was clear they had never been talked to that way before. He would, you know, he would say he'd he said in this one 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 uh, one section, uh, he said. This, this is a beautiful woman with long legs, and she's very, she's very, um, 
she's she's very self-assured uh, and, and 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 difficult to approach and your job is to approach her with your playing which I thought wow you know that <laughs> that's something well first of all we can't even say that yeah, to an orchestra yeah. anymore yeah. but um, he also would say uh, uh, like like you know this is this is when you like really really want to have um, uh, a piece of cake and you know you shouldn't and you know it's just stuff like that and I thought wow that's brilliant because yeah. that really touches people in, in their emotional core mm -hmm. oh and the most I think the most profound thing he said um, was you know he said to the wind section he said you know it must seem to you like I'm asking for the moon in fact I don't want anything from you what I want is for you to want something so bad that you want to you want to convince me hmm which I thought was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So I learned a lot. <laughs> I, well, even I, I think uh, sometimes there's camaraderie in the orchestra too to kind of make the conductor the the enemy or yes, of course. you yeah. know to make jokes about the conductor um, and to blame them for everything. Is that something that you ever considered when you you know made the switch to stepping on the podium often, or did you just try and forget all those jokes that you know and yeah. all the back talking? Yeah. It's, you know, you have to kind of ignore it yeah. if you want to get anything done because yeah. you can't. Uh, it used to really, I, I have a weakness is that I, I, if there's one person in the orchestra unhappy, I'm unhappy. And it's, it's I mean, it's not a human weakness, but it's a conductor weakness. Yeah. You know, I like I can't, you know, you can't really do good work if, if, if you're worried about one player that's not happy and it, it could be for some reason that has nothing to do with you you know and usually is it's usually they had a bad a bad morning yeah. you know with their kids or whatever so no um i just try not to think about it okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because of course you know if the the players are constantly muttering to each other i mean of course i did it too yeah you know, i know so. i'd probably equate it now to being a mom to like being the parent where right. you know that they're you know you're always going to be doing something wrong and they're mm. always going to be mad at you for something you did and just have to brush it off your shoulders and just keep going well yeah i mean part yeah. of leadership is just kind of you know, like continuing with the charge yeah you, know, you just have to you you have to do what you know needs to be done mm -hmm. and it may make somebody unhappy at one point or another but you know, because you're the leader, yep. that it has to be done. Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 one of the hard things about leadership mm -hmm. is uh, sometimes being unpopular. <laughs> you're you're a leader too in front of the orchestra when you were a soloist and uh, you were touring quite a bit. Um, you talked a little bit about how maybe it was a shock to you. I'm not so sure of the touring life and that it can seem fun at first, but that it, it can be kind of lonely. You're Very. in different cities all the time and you're by yourself. Um, how did you kind of cope with that? And did it wear down on you after some years? Yeah. I, I, you know, my, my model was Ron Paul. He was the, he was the first really international flute soloist. And, uh, and I did everything I could to be like him, you know, just, um, I went to study with him. I, 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 I learned how to play like him. Um, and, uh, but he really got off on having all those people around him all the time. Yeah. Strangers. He, he just, he liked, he, he got, he was energized by having people around him. And, you know, he, I don't know if you realize this, every, after every concert that he gave everywhere in the world, he would invite a group of at least 20 people out. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. He paid for everything. 
every night, you know, wow. uh, uh, all over the world. So he had these people that would just love to hang out with him, and they knew they were going to get a wonderful dinner out of it, mm-hmm. and, um, and just to be around him because he was so nice and so so much fun. And um, but I realized that I'm not energized by that. In fact, I feel drained if I yes. have too many people yeah. around me because I'm an introvert by mm-hmm. nature, and he's he was the ultimate extrovert. So uh, uh, I realized this is actually this is not a life for me. You know, it's really yeah. not. And uh, I'm 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 lucky that I discovered it early enough to, to do something about it. You know, mm-hmm. and I still enjoy playing, and I enjoy playing now more than I used to because when that was all there was, I was I I don't think I can play the Mozart G major again. I think I'm gonna die. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, and, but now you know now I don't play so often, so I actually enjoy it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's so when you do, it's different. a treat and a different mentality too. Yeah, yeah, and I'm and I, in a certain way I play better. You yeah. know, certainly, when you get older, you lose you you lose uh, fine muscle control, mm-hmm. and um, and we all know people that had to stop playing quite early. I'm lucky that it's lasted as long as it has. I mean, look at Maxence Lavilleux yeah. in his eighties, and he sounds like he's eighteen. Yeah. You know, um, but. Uh, but I think that's just like genetic almost. Because you know? <laughs> I mean, he 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 does have a very relaxed setup, but yeah, 80s. I mean, that's but, yeah, you know. that's that's insane. <laughs> but yeah, so you do. I mean, I feel I, I feel you know technical things going, but um, but the music making part of it gets better. So it's, there's trade offs, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I'm hope I'm, I'm I'm praying that I'm one of those people who knows when it's time to stop. There seem to be so few of them. <laughs> I've told all my friends, "You tell me when yeah, it's time be to stop." Honest. You know? Yeah, be honest. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but you know, I, I, I was an assistant conductor at the Met for ten years, yeah. and so I was around a lot of singers. And once they reach a certain level uh, of of career success, as they're getting older, they start having to do workarounds with their voice. Mm-hmm. You know, and. Um, I didn't always recognize them because I'm not really a voice person, but, but I, you know, I'd be talking to the coaches and they'd say, oh yeah, she's, she's having to do this and this and this and this in order to, in order to negotiate that phrase. Hmm. But I feel that when I play yeah. every day, like there's just little workarounds that I'm, I'm doing now so that I can still negotiate the, the flute repertoire and, 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 you know, have people appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, that's all the time we have today, and uh, we're going to gear up and get ready to, to hear you teach a master class as well, share all the musical knowledge you were just talking about. Sounds good. And uh, I'm really excited, and thanks for joining me. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, it was fun. Ransom Wilson's full and varied career has taken him around the world, collaborating with some of the greatest musicians of our time. Perhaps his unassuming personality makes it easy to forget Ransom's many accomplishments and the commanding presence that he has on stage as a performer and conductor. He shares his passion for storytelling through music and in his masterclass at Flute Center emphasized making a statement with your interpretation, putting your stamp on a piece while still serving the intentions of the composer. Thank you, Ransom Wilson, for the masterclass and interview. Recordings from this episode featured the Iber Concerto, Mozart Sonata in F Major, K376, 
and Reich Vermont Counterpoint. This has been an episode of Flute Unscripted. This podcast is sponsored by the Flute Center of New York. Visit our website at flutesforsale.com for the largest selection of new and pre-owned instruments. Remember to use this podcast promo code LISTEN for discounts on flutes and sheet music. Special thanks to our owner, Phil Unger, the Flute Center team, and Stefan Huskoldsen for our theme music. Music.